the Garden Hose Australia podcast, where we talk all things gardening. Your hosts, Jamie and Erin, will wander down the garden path with tea or gin in hand and discuss gardening loves, hates, new discoveries, interview some of our garden heroes, visit inspiring gardens and continue a discussion about plants that started over 30 years ago in primary school. Happy New Year, ho. Oh, happy ho New Year to you too. <laughs> So the last podcast that went out was actually quite a bit before Christmas, but because of my dilly-dallying, it only just went out. So we've tricked people into thinking we've been doing all this stuff over Christmas (laughs) into January. Truth be told, we had a short horticultural break that involved champagne. I was there for that. It did involve some champagne. Um, (laughs) I love that you're making it sound like you dilly-dallied. I've seen the hours. Oh, I haven't seen them. I've heard about the hours that you put in <laughs> for your regular job. And I think, look, it would be really great if I had better IT prowess and I could take over the editing of the episodes because <laughs> I work less than you do. Uh, that's all right. Anyway, what have you been doing on the haughty front? I tracked us back to where we left off last time. Ooh. I looked through my camera roll and the things that we talked about in the last podcast. Um, so episode 14, I listened to episode 14 while I was digging out blackberries in my garden mm. and it really helped me through. Do you have a lot so, of blackberries in your garden? Something I haven't told you, Erin, is that I've been in my new house three years and I've, I've had a lot of trouble bonding with my backyard. And uh, it's I've got a really nice garden in the front yard and we spend a lot more time in the front yard than the backyard. It's more user-friendly. We have just in the last week acquired ourselves a puppy. <laughs> He's very cute. He's quite cute. And said puppy has to be taken to the toilet millions of times a day. <laughs> and you know how puppies are really Oh, they love chewing on things. Mm. He's much more user-friendly when he's outdoors. So I've been spending a lot of time in the backyard and I think I think I've bonded with my backyard. Ooh, so what was the trouble bonding? Was it the light issue that you were? Part of it is that it, uh, the backyard backs onto the tourist road, so there's more traffic noises in the backyard than the front yard. Which is bigger um, because you have quite an extensive front yard as well. That's quite mm, large. They're both big. Mm. Probably the backyard. Yeah, okay. I can go weeks to months without going out to the backyard properly. Mm, okay. Um, we. I, I also, I think I've told you previously, like I do have the stairs of death. You do that, death. So you probably go out to the chickens, though, because they're out to the chickens every day. So, but they're just off the deck. But I, I can go months without going up the stairs of death. It's not going up them that's the problem. It's coming back down them. <laughs> 
since having having a puppy and he was too small in the first few days to get up and down the steps and had to carry him numerous times up and down I'm like I really probably need to finish putting wire on these so I think eight months after the start of the stairs of death project uh where they're a little bit less deathy well this time of year they're probably less deathy aren't they yes until you get 20 mil of rain on them oh of course yeah because it's been so wet here it's so wet so it was a great motivation and my son kept giving me feedback he's been giving me feedback for eight months about how you really need to finish those uh i finished them just yesterday oh good work oh so that's why you had champagne last night to celebrate Sure, let's say that's why. Yeah, let's say that's why. (laughs) Yep, must be it. Oh, she's wired all the steps. Well, you know what this means. Champagne. (laughs) Champagne. That sounds like a champagne occasion. It's a champagne moment. Now that I can get into the backyard and I'm there more readily, I spent hours getting rid of the blackberries that have grown since Mm. we've moved in and I've ignored the backyard. And I just haven't been able to come to terms with what am I going to do here. But basically, I think it's all just going to be about variations of hydrangeas. Yes, but what about hellebores would do well there, wouldn't they? Think of it as a woodland garden. Hellebores, you could do hostas. I like the look of them. Are they also like just like houses? I don't know, maybe. I have got a really great collection of hostas. I've got a friend that grows them. Oh, a hosta dealer. Yeah, hosta dealer. He and his wife grow a ripper hosta. And, oh, just in December I acquired, I went shopping at Plant Multi for (laughs) some plants, went in for something they didn't have what I wanted, but I left with three new varieties of hosta. (laughs) Oh, I bought a couple of his begonias as well. He grows the most. In your backyard, wouldn't they? Cold. Is we it? get snow. I thought it was protected. I thought you wouldn't get that. Wouldn't be so bad. I don't think they'll love it. It's, okay, it's really right. hot. We don't we don't get frost, but it's really cold. But what about the Japanese anemones? The Japanese windflowers. Oh, I've got those, but they could take over your life. You want things to establish. You could have a bluebell wood. I love what you're saying, except I'm thinking more picking flowers. I seem to love picking. Mm. All right. What about yeah. berpleurum? Ber- don't know what that is. Oh, I'll show you. Uh, ladies' Here. mantle. Don't know the Alchemia. I think it's called Alchemia. 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 Um, you can't go wrong with euphorbia. That'll grow everywhere. Can I cut it and use it as a cut flower? Some people do. He, um, one of the Eurovision horticulture crew, she mm-hmm. is a massive fan of euphorbias. And whenever we go out anywhere looking at plants, there's euphorbia distraction that goes on. Oh. I had a few different euphorbias growing when I was in Oakley and then since moving out, and I didn't love them because I once had a bad skin reaction to the um, the sap on them uh, because, all right, so for every, everyone listening to this, I'm about to say good things about euphorbia, but this is my general sort of warning to say that lots of people get a bad reaction to the milky sap, so wear gloves. Having said that, since I've moved, to a less hospitable part of the world in terms of gardening. Uh, very friendly people, but just uh, the gardening conditions uh, can be quite challenging. 
and casting no aspersions on the Macedon Rangers. Anyway, but I have come around to love the euphorbia in all its forms and varieties because there are many different kinds and they will, they'll take anything. They give me a clay soil, not a problem. Frost for five months of the year, I've got you. Burning hot summers, we're okay. Grow between rock crevices, sure. So there is something to love about a euphorbia. Not there yet. <laughs> I need to take away some of your creature comforts, then you'll start loving them. You know, the the horticulture Eurovision crew lover of euphorbia, I am normally one to two years behind what she likes. She's, She's the canary in the mine horticulturally for me. I'm I'm a bit slow, and what happens is that about two years after she said to me, I really like these, I go, thing you told me you really like, so I really like now. So on the bell curve of marketing, she's the early adopter. She absolutely is. I'm going to say horticultural visionary. Oh, ooh, big call. She sounds like someone we should interview on this podcast. See what I can do. But she's the one that I follow around nurseries. Yeah. And I just sort of keep my ears pricked for, oh, what's she looking at and what's she, oh, did she just comment on something then? Ooh, what is it? Well, today I thought of your horticultural visionary because I bought uh, a GM. She was the one who was trying to convince me to buy GMs when we went to the Bolabet Garden Fair. Uh, and I didn't do it and I've been thinking about them ever since. And today I went out to buy something entirely different, but went, ooh, gyms. I actually had several in my arms. I thought, no, Erin, no, you buy one, put it in, and then we're going to propagate from that. So I restricted myself, but I may go back and buy more. But, uh, yes, so I am now trying gym. So I thought I'll try this, see if it lasts for the first, you know, the first year in my garden, if it does. Beautiful. You've been very restrained because... At Bollebeck, I bought four, and I was thinking of you the other day because one of them started flowering. Oh, did it? Yes. Um, lovely. Oh, it's working towards lovely. <laughs> what we actually went out to buy today was something to put at the front of a new garden. So Tom has been working on a citrus garden. He was going to be working on pergola, but I think he's got to point with the pergola where all the interesting stuff's been done. He's done some great work. Now he's got to finish it and he's a bit like, well, a bit like me. It's like, yeah, can't be bothered with that. Do you know what I would like to do is build a whole new garden? So we've been thinking for some time about how we get citrus going here, properly outside of the greenhouse. Because uh, as you know, when we lived in Melbourne, we had loads of citrus trees. We had an abundant supply of limes and mandarins and blood oranges. Moved to central Victoria. None of them live outside because of the frost. But we've been thinking on the other side of our garage, there is a small ledge that's just been a weedy sort of, you know, two meter uh, expanse along the side of the Colour Bond garage. Uh, and so Tom's decided to build a raised bed. He um, filled it with lovely stuff. He's put irrigation in, he's dug a trench for irrigation, he's put up a wall of Rio behind it. So we went out and we bought seven citrus trees that were going to espalier against this Rio wall. And then he said, there's some space in front of those trees. We can grow some more stuff. And I said, oh, I don't know, citrus. 
They're, they're hungry and thirsty beasts. They have shallow roots. They don't like underplanting, but Tom would not be swayed. So we went to the nursery. He's bought thyme and lavender and planted it quite to the front of the bed. So they do have a good meter around them each. So the trees, that is. I think he has visions of sort of pulling up a chair and sitting in his Mediterranean glory with the citrus and the lavender and the thyme. How do you sit in your Mediterranean glory? Is that a well? I think you, of- you are recumbent. I was just going to ask: is it is it a state of mind or an environment or a chair? I think for Tom it's a state of mind because I think he he likes to think of himself in a uh, like a stone courtyard in Provence. But, uh, yes, and he did actually, having said that, go and buy himself a new chair at Christmas to help with this Mediterranean vision. <laughs> it's actually one of those like Cape Cod chairs, but it puts him back into a relaxed state where he can just tilt his head back with a glass of wine in hand, admiring his quasi-Mediterranean garden. Sat in said chair. Was it on your deck? Ah, yes, he did too. sat in your chair to write you plant labels. Oh, sorry, I sat in Tom's chair to write you plant labels. And was it recumbent? I recumbed a lot. Mm. Yes, Mm. it was was quite nice. So, uh, yeah, anyway, but I'm very happy that's done. So we'll... um, We'll have to see how we go with the espalier. And we did actually have a brief conversation about what type of espalier we're going to do and everything. And then we just sort of hit home on citrus trees. That's not like a deciduous tree where you have to be really careful about, you know, what you're pruning off and what you're doing. Citrus trees, we're just going to kind of tie it all. It's an evergreen tree. They're very vigorous. We're just going to tie them all and do a kind of rough fan shape against the... uh, the Rio wire behind, I think that'll be okay. But some of us in this podcast, being you, missed the Espalier workshop at Bollebeck where we were run through the different forms of Espalier by Chris, can't remember his last name, from Merrywood Nursery. Mm -hmm. Let's call him Chris Merrywood. And what did he say about this? Well, he was talking about, uh, citrus very much lend themselves to informal espalier. Perfect. Let's call that what we're doing, informal espalier. Basically, we just want a kind of flattish structure that we can easily drop frost cloth over in winter. I bought some citrus for a friend. They have built a passive house in Mount Beauty and they want a green fence. And I said, oh, I can help you out with that. Um, but I'm having trouble finding very nice citrus trees. Does it snow at Mount Beauty? No, it's just cold. That's at the ba- it's at the base of Falls Creek. Yeah. So I was just thinking they um they grow citrus outside there. They're gonna have to wrap that up in winter, aren't they? No, it's fascinating. So they're in the Kiwa Valley. Right. And the citrus that grow through there are amazing. Really? Yes. Is that do they not are they somehow protected? They're sheltered or something. They I think it's just the, the environment of the valley. I don't know whether they get frost or not, but hmm. the citrus growing through there are very impressive. Hmm. Um and their next door neighbor has got a classic 90s style of citrus. Don't know if you remember back in the day in the 90s, on I don't know whether it was Gardening Australia or Burke's Backyard. 
gardening show, mm. they used to do a thing where instead of buying a multi-grafted tree, mm. a fruit tree, why don't you stick three trees in the same hole? That way you don't have one graft or grafted variety that ends up dominating the others. So you're sort of saving space by planting three trees in the one hole. And how does that go? Does it? Well, the only time I have ever seen it is next door to where my friends live. They've got this big sort of ball bush of citrus. And I'm like, hang on a minute, several different varieties in there. And I was like, classic 90s. So it's it's all different trunks coming up. Can't see the trunks though because it's a foliage from the the ground level up, but you can see that when it's fruiting, there's numerous different varieties in there. Interesting. Mm, Even taken photos of it for you. Mm, Yeah, I'll I'll search that up. But so I said to them, I can grow you Espalier citrus for your fence line. But one of the things Chris Merrywood said at the workshop was be very fussy when you're buying your citrus um, in terms of the shape of the citrus. So, yeah, I've been looking for things with sort of low branching um, structure um, as opposed to sometimes when you when you buy a citrus tree, a lot of them have sort of bare trunks for the first mm. um, 50 or so centimetres. So I was looking mm. for something that had branches and a nice even branch structure that I could work with. And your training should be done in summer. Okay. Yes. Well, that's why we put them in now because we thought, you know, there's a lot of things you don't plant in summer because it can be a challenging time. But for citrus, we thought let's put it in now um, because here their challenging time is more across the middle of the year. So put it in now. We know we've got a, a fully irrigated bed. Uh, we can look after them, bed them in before they've got to meet their challenging cold time. Challenging time. It was the best of times. It was the frostiest of times. <laughs> frostiest of times, which is half the year here in Colorado. Oh, yes. And tell you what I do like about the further away you get from the a city, the more you actually feel the seasons. I think you experience them. So you do get more of the extremes. I think when you're in a really built-up area, um, all the extremes of weather, uh, the edges are softened a bit and, and it's a bit more of the same, kind of like our, politi- our political system, <laughs> a bit more centrist. But anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Um, so I, I like that. I do like knowing that in winter there's a period where it's uncomfortably cold and in summer there's periods where it's uncomfortably hot and you know, in autumn you get brilliant colours and, you know, that sort of thing. So I must admit I do like, that's the bit I like about living out in the country. Make two points. Go ahead. Number one, should we have a second podcast where we do political discussion? Oh, yes, surely. Because that's what the world needs and another political podcast. <laughs> Cultural point of view. Ah, yes. I actually, you know, don't worry, I just, I just want to... I want to allay your fears before I say what I'm about to say so that you don't panic about what I might say because you know me. I had a friend drop in today with her family and they came to meet the puppy. Uh, there's a steady stream of visitors at our place. People people all of a sudden were very popular. We have a puppy. They want to come meet it. <laughs> it's like having a swimming pool, swimming pool, puppy, small baby. We got discussing ants, jumping jack 
ants mm-hmm. and um, my friend had a an ant philosophy breakthrough where she realised that maybe the way that she viewed the ants and had been treating the ants, she likened it to a political situation. And I, I'm like, oh, wow, that got deep. We could do politics from a horticultural point of view. Oh, an intersectional podcast. You love a Venn diagram. I love a Venn diagram. So politics with a horticultural lens. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to go on a limb here, but I'm pretty confident there is no other podcast <laughs> doing that. Slightly obtuse. <laughs> and people have described me as slightly obtuse. I think we're <laughs> onto something. Now, I'm going to take a sharp left turn and go back to actual gardens. <laughs> Hang on. Oh, because I had a second point. Oh, Political sorry. Podcast. Yeah, that was, oh gosh, all of that was only point number one. <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> all right, hit me with point number two. <laughs> Just like to validate you in what you said about the seasons and um, and feeling them. And one of the things that I try and get my students to do is download an, an app. I am a big fan of the Bureau of Meteorology. Um, love their app because I can localise it. And I try and get my students used to checking the weather because they are funny funny critters where they'll show up wearing shorts when it's four degrees then tell me they're cold and they don't want to go outdoors to do any work whereas um because i've checked the weather and i i understand the seasons a little bit more than they do i can barely move because i'm wearing seven layers in the top half of me only wear one layer in the bottom unless it gets down to zero since i've um, you know back going to work and stuff i only wear one layer in the bottom but uh, in the first six months we lived here and I wasn't working, I then, and so most of my outdoor stuff was with kids and going, you know, school runs and that sort of thing, always two layer on the bottom in winter. I just like to clarify, when I say one layer, it's undies plus a layer. <laughs> yes, I, I did think that. <laughs> when I say two layers, I guess undies plus two layers. So undies plus the thermals. Plus my jeans. Yes. Let's just, we're not counting underwear. We're just assuming that we're going around wearing underwear. Do you know there's something about, I'm a big fan of underwear. That, that I'm just going to say this once because I just want to vent this frustration and confusion I have. This is not horticultural at all, but I think our listeners don't mind the occasional tangent. What is it with the young, I don't know, what are they? Are they? Gen Ys? Uh, are they millennials? Gen Ys? No, Gen Zs. You just sound old here and complain about the youth. The youth. I'm going to complain about the youth. Um, so I think it's the Gen Zs. The whole thing with the socks, the persistent wearing of socks with any type of clothing. As a Gen Xer here, our view about socks, I think we put socks in with the whole underwear category. So people shouldn't be seeing your undies or your bras, or your socks, really. So your socks, you can wear longish socks if they're under long pants, like your jeans, and then your jeans come down to your ankles. But then if you are wearing something, like something, a cropped pant, if you are wearing a dress and you want to wear some little, you know, trainers with it or something, you wear invisible socks, right? And even when you've got your runners and you're going to the gym or something like that, 
you wear like your sneaker socks so they cut off around your ankles because we tend to think it would look weird. And I was raised with a very much no socks and sandals. However, my kids seem to love wearing Crocs and socks. They love wearing slides and socks. And I've said to them, oh, no, 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 no. You don't don't wear socks. They're like, yeah, they're comfortable. (laughs) It's only your generation. (laughs) We're not ashamed of our sock wearing. With your kids. No, stop right there. Remember you in your youth. Remember your socks. Remember when you went to a pseudo private girls school and had to wear layers of long socks to get them to crinkle correctly. Well, yes, but that was like school uniform stuff. Oh, but the long socks with the correct crinkle in the 90s was not uniform. That was culturally appropriate for the time. That's true. We did do that. But never with open-toed shoes, not with slides or sandals. Can I give you some lifestyle advice? And it's unsolicited and you might (laughs) might press stop to the recording any moment now. You need to take up yoga. Flexible body, flexible mind. You need some flexibility in your sock views. Like you didn't have the same fashion choices as your mother, you know. You are now your mother. Now, not because you have the same view as your mother, but you are your mother reflecting back to your teenage self that's not yourself, that's your children. It's like my dad, when I was a teenager, having a heart attack that I was going to wear jeans out of the house that had holes in them. I understand that you're finding the sock thing challenging. And I love an invisible sock in my runners, but so excited that people like want to get their socks out and they want to get their socks and crocs out and i i've got to tell you i wish that i could sock and croc yeah look, i don't even croc I don't croc i don't have crocs i've got pseudo croc for wearing out to the chicken yeah i wish i could i see it i see it around and i have two pairs of shoes runners or work boots now i have variations of those two Two shoes and long socks always go on your work boots to keep the um the jumping jacks and the spiders out. But this is also part of I can't make decisions. I get too tired. So this is why I wear green hip workwear every day of my life so that I don't have to choose what will I wear today. Some days I wish that my my job had a uniform. Could you do self-imposed uniform? Like that's what mine is. And and people have commented at at my work about, well, you're not teaching, you know, you didn't have to wear your trade clothes today. And I'm like, well, well that would have required a decision and some thought. So that's I'm true. Here my trade clothes. I did recently listen to a podcast about, um, I, I do love a Mamma Mia podcast and they have a fashion-y podcast where they talked about it what they call the suit of armor so your suit of armor the sort of outfits that you wear where you feel the most comfortable it gives you the most confidence and it was like you know pick a few of those and keep those on on repeat keep those ones going that would be a good idea i uh with you talking about seasons because of where we live it could be any season today or tomorrow Mm. it could snow here tomorrow in summer (laughs) that's the joys of victoria (laughs) stand this like i've got my largely summer wardrobe ready to roll but there are two pieces of thermals always stashed in the corner ready to go i'm wearing a lot of fashion here today 
We are. Less horticulture, more fashion. Who knew? <laughs> no, and I think anyone who knows me and sees me in my self-imposed uniform would go, I can't believe Jamie's talking fashion because what does she know? Um, and people do comment. Like I've, I've been out to a couple of social things where I wore a short skirt and some heels and people commented to me, I have never seen you in anything except for workwear. workwear. Uh, now that you've made your two points, I am circling back, as everyone is in January, to the holiday garden I'm going to tell you about. I was thinking about when you were saying short skirt and heels, it was the only time I've been in the recent holiday we had away where I have been in heels when we went out for a nice lunch. But we stayed at a lovely place down the coast and we stayed there two years ago. And my word, in two years, has the garden grown in that place? It was, and I sort of thought, oh, this is as I remember it. And then I looked back at the photos from two years ago. No, it had grown hugely. The garden was so pretty, so, so pretty, so, so pretty. But then, and I, I think I put stuff on Instagram about it because I was just enjoying myself so much in it. The place we stayed, it was tiny, teeny, tiny, teeny, tiny little cabin where we stayed. But what made it so lovely that it was in a really expansive garden. So, and you go in there in summer, so, you know, you're outside most of the time. I was looking around and thought, why is this, what makes this work? Why is it so beautiful? You know, you go and visit a lot of gardens. We visit a lot of gardens. I was looking around I thought, you know, there is no, there are no unusual plants here. There's no really fancy sort of high-end elements in the garden. And the, the plants, it was a limited plant palette. And they were really well, you know, common plants, really, I guess you'd say, but it was just really well thought out and really well structured. And it was sort of layers of green on grey on green on grey. And they had the right mix of um, some of the plants that in the garden, they'd punctuated it with like well-trimmed sort of like some balls in there and then loose few plants in between so there were some grasses there was some miscanthus there was yarrow and sedum coming up around it and then in between some tightly clipped balls of but there was, i think there was tea tree and western gear and things like that it was coastal so they had all of that in between and it was just gravel paths everywhere in between and oh my lord it was so peaceful so 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 peaceful so the limited palette you know paul bangay has made a career on a limited palette. Well, that's true. And I probably don't have the restraint to be that limited. And there is something that appeals to me about his gardens because of the, the symmetry. And I I think there's even, you know, people say, I don't like a formal garden, that sort of thing. I just, I do believe there's something appealing to most people about symmetry when you go into a space. There's something that immediately makes you feel somehow relaxed nothing I need to sort of is confusing me here I know what it is what is it are you okay if I horticulturally psychologically analyze you oh go right ahead when you have symmetry in a garden Erin I think you feel that you can relax because someone has planned this and it's orderly so you don't need to plan it and you don't need to create order somebody's already got you yeah you're probably right my garden is a reflection of the innards of my brain where I didn't plan it out. I just stuck things in last minute. Oh, my God, get that in the ground before it dies. 
you like your garden, right? Love it. I love it. I also love the inside of my brain because I live with it and I understand that it's eclectic. I just don't have the time and energy for order. There's a book in that of a series of gardens that reflect their owner's brains. We'll do a podcast about it. (laughs) Hey, I'm flat out just publishing this podcast. (laughs) Well, all right. Well, I was just thinking I've got on my list here of things to talk about. You're not going to believe this. Hydrangeas. I'm always up for a high range of conversation. So, look, I think, you know, we've talked wooded uh, woodland for my backyard. I think what it's going to be is big clusters of um, hydrangeas. So, you know, multiples of approximately five of each variety that I really mm. like so that I've got enough to pick mm. for cut flowers. And I was standing out there the other day and I'm thinking, oh, yes, I could have the uh, hydrangea quercifolia mm. uh, snowflake, the double one, um, just hanging down this rock wall here. That would work quite well. Uh, hopefully the dog won't be dangling off the flowers by then. <laughs> yes, I, I had a I had a friend over today, the or the one who was uh, got political with her analysis of her relationships with her aunts in her garden, um, and I made her look at all my new hydrangea hybrids. Um, I didn't. I didn't breed them. I just grew them in my garden, transferred them from a pot. Gee, there's some rippers around. I bought for myself the same variety that my sister and I bought for you for Christmas. The mm-hmm. um, hydrangea macrophylla ruby red. I love it, but the little bugger gets powdery mildew quite easily. I haven't planted much in the backyard, but I did uh, with the horticulture Eurovision ladies. I went to antique perennials maybe about a year ago. Always and- a good choice. Oh my goodness! Yes, landscaping inspiration. They they've got a beautiful setup with their gravel gravel paths and their perennials spilling over the edges. And we're thinking that we'll get rid of our lawn in our backyard and Ooh, um, really mm, put gravel down because my husband has to carry the lawnmower up the stairs of death. Oh to, no, no, no! Yeah. Yes, get rid of that. Yeah, and no longer the stairs of death but by god they're steep and they're numerous so yeah last year i put in a collection that i bought from um antique perennials and then i've just pretty much ignored them for 12 months and it's a miracle that the chickens haven't dug them all out they only dug out a few and i was looking for an extra spot to stick some dahlias and i just i don't know if you recall i made you a little video erin for insta about me popping out my dahlia tubers from (laughs) along the retaining wall Mm mm-hmm and the lovely ladies from Gather Flower Farm then tagged us in a post that they made where they were slipping and sliding around in <laughs> mud trying to get theirs out. And here's me just going, oh, look, I've got a retaining wall. I just get my, my garden fork and I just go, and they're out of the ground. Um, so that section there. And now that I have de-blackberried most of the garden, I've got more room. I've got more inclination. Mm. I find inclination is one of my biggest challenges with gardening (laughs) i have got a blackberry uh well a blackberry front that we're trying to hit off uh my next door neighbor has uh they've kind of moved to another state did that a few years ago and they've just kept the place here and they visit it twice a year and they they haven't really worried about their all their blackberries i think they were actually planted like in the 70s 
in their property. I think someone thought it was lovely to have a berry patch that would have blackberries in it, but they weren't really maintained and they've sort of got a bit out of hand. And we didn't have blackberries here when we moved here, but I keep finding them popping up that they're just coming across um, through the fence and they've got a massive sort of out of control swathe of blackberries along the fence line. Blackberries are one of the few things that I put in our green bin to get collected by the council each week because I don't want to deal with them in terms of composting. So they're one of the few things. But I've I've filled the big green bin with blackberries and I was digging out the root balls. And the root balls weren't big, but, gosh, they're a tenacious plant. And part Mm. of me just can't help respecting them in terms of (laughs) their will to live, you know, where where their stems hit the ground, they can put down roots and they just grow and, you know, the birds are pooing them out and I've got seedlings coming up. You know, you're a bugger to deal with because you're going to prickle me. You're tenacious and your will to live is amazing. Did you go blackberrying as a kid? Did you go picking blackberries? Find our garden shed where I used to make you come and help me. Oh, that's right. You had them there. Because we used to go, I used to live kind of country-ish. We used to go blackberrying and, you know, get prickled and everything, but go and get blackberries. I don't think they were sprayed as widely as they are now. And bring them home. And I think mum used to make blackberry jam um, out of that, which I love. I love blackberry jam. So do you know, are the thornless blackberries as vigorous as the thorny ones? I love a thornless blackberry. I don't really want to eat them. I don't really care. I love them for flower arranging. Oh, yeah, they are nice. I like the raspberry greens for flower arranging. We've got um, at work, we've got two different varieties of thornless blackberry. They're slightly different. Uh, One of them, the canes are so vigorous, they're sort of 10 feet long, but they put off little side branches with berries that um, aren't necessarily, uh, the stems aren't long enough for flower arranging. But we've got another variety that doesn't have these massive canes, but it just has these beautifully consistent branches with berries on them and they when they're green or they're tinged with red they mm. are fabulous i prefer them for flower arranging than eating but are they as vigorous as like do they get out of hand like the traditional blackberries we grow them along um like tree pine poles with wires and we just we prune them back every winter so then they're not doing the same thing they're, they're not coming up as seedlings and mm. um we're pruning them every winter so they're deciduous they're properly deciduous um yeah okay so they're berries. more like raspberries yeah but more vigorous in mind for um autumn and winter plantings what i'm going to be doing over the next few weeks is start preparing beds that I'm going to need. So down, I live on top of a hill, so I'm going to start using some of the slopey parts of the land. So over the next few weeks, I've got um, some big rolls of black plastic tarp material. I'm going to start laying that all out. I've mowed it down. Well, actually, when I say I, my teenage son for cash has gone and mowed it down short and I'm watering it really well and then laying this tarp and pegging it down over all of it. And the idea of the watering is that it's like, oh, you feed it, you water it, everything wants to grow, but then you tarp it. And so then it, it sort of exhausts itself, I think is the theory behind that. So that's what I'm doing. So I figure if it has all of summer and early autumn to be you know, nuked under this tarp so that then when I want to plant late autumn and winter, it's ready to go. 
plant photosynthesize as well under your black plastic. So that's partly what it's trying to grow vigorously because you fed it and watered it, but um, it can't photosynthesize. Oh, how's your dahlia patch going? Yeah, no, it's, we're not talking about that this year. I've actually kept, I've potted on a series of dahlias you've given me, the white ones, and the last year you gave me these red ones. So I've got them in a really big pot outside my greenhouse. And, look, they're going. I'm getting flowers from them and I've got a few reliable ones that I kept in the ground. Um, I overwintered and, they, I mean, they started flowering before Christmas. Uh, so I think keeping them in the ground is the way to go. I'm not paying anything like that, any attention at the moment. It's all on my perennials right now. So I've actually... Ha- rejig sort of my flower patch been digging trenches to work out it's taking me a while to work out where the water naturally sits and flows and that sort of thing so I thought rather than fight it I've paid a bit more attention to it and I've actually documented it I've gone out I've got a little notebook gone old school I've gone out and I've made notes uh, with different months of the year where the water sits where it's going and I've I've seen the pattern so now I've dug this it's not the most efficient way in terms of how I would normally lay out beds for maximum productivity of fitting in the most but I've worked out I need to dig this diagonal trench through all my flower rows because that means the water is naturally flowing into that and so I've filled it with scoria and it's flowing uh, down out of the flower patch. And it's actually working really well because last year I lost a lot of dahlia tubers. They rotted in the ground. And I think it's just because I was trying to force these things to try to grow in these areas where water was naturally ponding because this, these beds are all built up, but underneath there's, it's really sitting on a big shale of rock, like bedrock underneath. So there's, you know, everything just sort of sits there um, in terms of water. So anyway, and so now I'm laying down so much cardboard, heaps of cardboard and mulch for all my paths and building up the beds in between. And I'm going to build some raised beds coming up towards the house. But in those areas, I'm putting all perennials now. I'm not, I haven't sown for this summer any new annuals at all. Uh, I'm just doing all perennial propagation. You don't have time for annuals. No, and look, I they'll I'll come back to them like in the next few summers I will. But this year I've just given myself a respite from that to say all the time I would be putting into them this summer, I'm just doing bed preparation for perennials. Speaking of propagation, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about. I am putting in oh well, I want to put in 40 olive trees to make a a kind of hedge. I may espalier them. Now, I could go and buy 40 columnar olives or something like that, which is quite a lot of money. Now, I have a lot of olive trees. Well, a lot, quite a few olive trees here that are doing quite well. Uh, So I was thinking, can I take cuttings from them and just propagate them myself? In the great cultural terms of things, yes and no. (laughs) Um, Yes, you can. It depends on a couple of things. So now's a really good time. So... Uh, if you are taking cuttings in spring or summer, mm-hmm. generally dealing with semi-hardwood material. Mm-hmm. That's this season's growth. 
and you would sort of want the ends of your branches that are about 10 to 15 centimetres long. Okay. However, you can apparently propagate them in winter and they would be hardwood cuttings. Oh, okay. Um, well, that's good because I have more time at the moment and so I have plenty of cutting material that I can take from them. So I guess I just need to have a good look. A lot of mine, with all the rain, they've had a lot of new growth. So I probably want to be careful about not taking the really sappy stuff, getting the more semi-hardwood stuff that might be cutting deeper into the trees. Either you need to wait till that growth firms up a bit. If it were me, I would be wanting to get one to two cuttings off the tip of tip growth. So using the tips and then the next um, couple of sections down. So if, if each cutting is 10 to 15 centimetres long, you're going to, you know, you're looking at sort of 30 to 45 centimetres of growth. Now, you may not have that much growth, so you might be looking at really just one or two cuttings from the tips. What can happen is your trees are quite old. Hmm. If If you haven't pruned an older bush back, to prepare it for that really nice vigorous growth then you're probably going to have growth that's quite thin spindly and not as vigorous and it's not awesome for taking cuttings from so you can do it if you're desperate however if you can find an alternative source of olive material um, that might be good and so part of that is that sort of a lack of calcium in the tissue so you need oh. and I've, I've had this at work where I get my students to take cuttings of different buxus varieties and I've got some big old buxus japonica uh, the Japanese box and we've pruned it a few times but it it's lacking calcium and the cuttings can sit there for 10 months and not put roots on. So in order for a stock plant or your mother plant to give you good cuttings that will put on roots, you need it to have enough calcium um, for it to sort of complete that process. Well, that's um, interesting you say that because yeah. you gave me a tray full of a variety of buxus and I'm just about to, because they were going to be my mother plants, uh, rather than keeping them in pots, I thought, you know what, I'm on five acres. I could, I'll just build a bed for them. Um, I'm going to plant them in the bed and keep them as my mother stock and keep propagating from them. So what would you, I mean, obviously I'll be pruning them regularly so they'll have new flushes of growth. Would you be feeding the buxus with something to make sure that they're, healthy and have sufficient calcium is the ph of your soil where you are or where you are planting them yeah it's it's about 6.8 and you well and truly afford to throw a bit of dolomite lime on those loves buxus love a bit of dolomite lime and if you're at 6.8 you, I, I don't think that i don't think dolomite will change your ph too much dolomite is i think calcium carbonate and magnesium um and it sort of stops the ph running away too much probably helpful if i'm because i'm putting them in a place where there's some decent soil but it is got a heavy clay base and so i will be putting imported compost in there you know sometimes that can break down really quickly it probably doesn't hurt to add the dolomite i'd, I'd also then be ph testing your compost yeah true so i got, I got a much better load of compost recently 
So just a shout out to the um, Macedon, Mount Macedon Garden Supplies. Gee, I got some lovely compost from them last week. You can try and get some more then. If you're happy with it, you should try and get some more. It was really good, really nice. While they've still got the same load in stock. Mm. Back to your olives. Mm -hmm. Are they a good olive-producing tree? Yes. So um, some of them are, some of them aren't. Then they should be a good good prospect for you to take cuttings from. You know what you could do? Mm -hmm. You, I'm seeing you in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. You could pick some olive branches, put them in a plastic bag with a little bit of water just sort of to moisten them, and you could bring them to me and I could show you how to make cuttings from them. That would be excellent. All right, and we can record a video for our YouTube page. So we have one of those. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> We're amazing. Hey, remind me and I'll airdrop you all the videos I've made. <laughs> so everyone should check out Garden Home. Oh, no, actually, sorry, we are, that, that is under our other umbrella, our educational um, umbrella of Botanical Academy. This is a soft launch of Botanical Academy. So our educational workshop uh, arm of the Garden Host, we have a Botanical Academy YouTube page. Philip Johnson can soft launch the Chelsea Australian Native Garden in Alinda. We, the Garden Host, can soft launch the Botanical Academy. I think we just did. Dahlias, circling back to them. I know you're not having a big dahlia season. I keep finding them everywhere. I was convinced that I dug up all the tubers that I wanted to dig up, but everywhere I go, there's dahlias popping out of the ground. <laughs> and sometimes I only notice this when it's like I'm pulling out some weeds and I'm like, oh, I think that's a dahlia, but the slugs have been chewing on them. Oh. So I've got these these very um, uh, well-established clumps of stems because they've uh, reshot on multiple occasions um, from being chewed on. So I've, I found that pretty funny. So I'm having to go around and restake things that, or stake things that I didn't know were there. My chickens have been digging out some of my uh, tubers from last year where I, I kept myself maybe a dozen seedlings, uh, the F1 seedlings. I was very, very restrained, I felt, about what am I going to keep. Keeping in mind, I'm not on five acres. The chickens have scratched quite a few of them out and then the slugs have had a go at them as well. And mm-hmm. now that we have a puppy, I'm putting compost on things, but I've got to keep him out. So I'm having to fence off all the dahlias in the backyard so that I can <laughs> compost them and then feed them. And if I need to put a little bit of snail bait down, kind of the puppy getting into that. No, oh, look, you know, I just feel a bit of guilt too that weighs heavy on me with the dahlias because the corms are quite expensive now because they've been such a popular plant and if I go out and buy more corms and then I put them in and then things like they rot because they were in the wrong place or you know they get ridden by virus or something happens to them I just feel you know it's not like buying a packet of seeds (laughs) and four dollars is gone (laughs) it's just it's 12 to 15 dollars per plant (laughs) yes except that they're tax deductible and I know I reminded my husband of this recently when I've, I've been um, doing a little, I've been to Karanga Native Nursery in Mount Evelyn oh, I've a couple been of times. ages. Yeah, I've been thinking about it because something, when I see all these pictures at the moment of flowering gums like Carimbias with the buds just bursting into blossom, I'm thinking, oh, 
going to need some more of those. Yeah, look, that's one of their weak points is they don't have a great range. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, um, okay. Because they, would. they just don't. Um, and I know this because I've been there a few times looking for some for a friend who moved house and had, had a glorious um, flowering gum that she wanted to replace. Mm-hmm. And uh, Karenga has generally only got sort of one, maybe oh. two varieties and colours. Mm-hmm. When we go to the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society events, I think it was last March, Vaughan's native plants from the Grampians was there and he had about at least five or six different varieties, like grafted varieties. Well, you know, in April we are going to the Grampians. I wonder if we could visit Vaughan. Well, look, it's do we go visit Vaughan or we, we have already seen Vaughan at Fernie Creek. They'll, um, I think February or March they have one and that's when Ooh, I, I bought Okay. One. Well, that's yeah. soon. Tell me when that's on. He had beautiful stuff and beautiful varieties and really impressive native plants, but he doesn't do business with Karenga because um, it's too far away. It's like a four-hour drive. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, his stuff is fabulous. I've been buying from Karenga because a lot of the time I'm like, I'm not paying retail for that. Uh, got sucked in, been paying retail for um, loving native ground covers. Ah, oh, which ones? I bought Mazis. Pomilio, fabulous. Almost looks like a little native violet um, in terms of colouring, but the shape of a flower more like a lobelia. They'll grow in uh, sun to shade and they can handle really wet spots and you can even grow them like in a pond. It comes in purple and white, so I bought one of each. And then I bought a goodenia, which is a little yellow flowering. Is it goodenia ovata? Uh, humilius. Oh, humilius. Okay. Yes, yeah. with a little yellow flower. So, again, mm. it'll grow in water or sun to part shade. And I bought some native violets because I hadn't seen them before in just a, a pure white. Ah, yeah, usually they're sort of the purple and white, aren't they? Yeah, normally the two tones, purple and white. So they had solid purple and pure white, mm. so I bought one of each of those. And then I restrained myself and just stopped. But my husband did stir me up about, did you just buy more plants? I'm like, yeah, it's for my job. They're tax deductible. Especially if with your students, under the training package guidelines and criteria, you must, with them for the unit of competency, undertake propagation activities, demonstrate numerous types of propagation. Now, what if some of those types are to do with layering and division? And is this your native violet? Yeah. Well, all of those ground covers so we can be multiplying them, we can be doing that through layering, and then mm. we can be dividing clumps of them. So, you know, the youth of Australia, they will be learning all sorts of wonderful stuff. <laughs> and the medium. your garden grow? Oh, through the medium of native ground covers. <laughs> I've got my um, Sanguisorbas are just coming into flower. Gosh, I love a Sanguisorba. They. They're, um, I'll put a picture up of this so you can see it, but um, I bought them from uh, Antique Perennials and they're a summer flowering perennial. They grow in sort of clumps that probably get to about 40 centimetres wide, but they have these tall spikes they send up and they have these little flower heads. There are a couple of varieties. One's a little bit shorter, more rounded, and one has quite a 
long flower head. It's almost like the flower you'd get on a reed grass, but they come in like shocking sort of purples and uh, rosy oh, yes. pink. Yeah. Yes, I know them. Yeah, they're really lovely and uh, they're actually not that common in nurseries or anything. Like antique perennials is the only one I've seen growing them. Like they completely die back over the winter, but then they come back and they're, they're just such an unusual sort of flower type. I love them in um, as a cut flower um, and they last a long time. So I'm trying to work out, because you don't see them around, it makes me think that maybe they're not as easy to propagate perhaps so i'm just gonna i'm keeping an eye on these ones this season to see how easy it is to harvest seeds from them uh, from the flower heads and if they set seed and if i can actually try to collect seed from my ones and just grow more for myself so i'm going to give that a go and the other one this year i'm going to try from seed i know they're a bit tough these ones are the chocolate cosmos they're very nice. They're lovely. And mine are just going gangbusters at the moment. They're not as easy to propagate, those ones. Um, but, again, they're one of those ones that, like, I bought mine from Tasmania. They were, I didn't have anyone um, selling them here a few years ago and I was buying them. I wonder if you had your own fresh seed, whether they'd be much easier to grow. Well, the ones that the Cosmos, I don't know what they're called, are they cupcake ones where they look like they're yeah. a crinkly? Yeah, the cupcake ones. They're lovely. And um, that beautiful, have you seen the apricotter? cosmos no oh they're beautiful and they are like a really tawny apricotty pinky color oh they're really beautiful because those growing yeah and look i must admit even though i said i'm not doing annuals my cosmos have just self-sown to be honest um hugo accident my son accidentally ran the tractor through the cosmos last season uh, and they have still self-sown and they've come back and they are at the moment just starting to flower and they're taller than me Wow. Yeah, they're, and you just keep cutting them and they keep coming back. I've never grown white ones. And I think, and I, I did see, um, it was Bloom Into You Flower Farm out at, um, at Flower Dale. They, they do an amazing range of Cosmos and they had their white ones. And I thought, oh, yeah, next year, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do white ones. Honestly, throw a pack of seeds in the ground and they'll grow. They're, they're so easy. My mum grew Cosmos, actually. I don't even remember that. She used to, um, again, just throw seeds through the garden and they used to uh, come up so easily. And so sort of funny now when I see people coveting different varieties and going in search for them online, I thought, oh, I thought everyone grew them in their garden. <laughs> I um, I could throw a packet of seed in, but then um, I reckon the slugs would eat them. And they, they, they like a little bit of sun. You know, they've got that sort of daisy-ish kind of flower to them. I tried uh, sounding out a friend the other day about, hey, if I brought my, some of my slugs around, do you reckon you, your ducks would eat them? My chickens aren't necessarily eating them, either that or um, like the, the numbers are your definitely less. Your ducks come for a play date. Her ducks come for a play date at your house to eat your slugs. Yes, but what if something happens to her ducks while they're at my house? Could she just bring them over for like a three-hour supervised play date? more than that i've got <laughs> moved to slug city the other thing is it might be a philosophical matter we did discuss this because she's vegan so i might look mate i've got something to ask you <laughs> and maybe we decided that intentional slug killing was not within her philosophy oh, and i'm like okay. look i thought that might be the case but you're the only person i know who owns ducks okay yeah that's a whole other layer to <laughs> And I was trying to explain to her, oh, because, you know, we've got the big black ones and I'm trying to tell her how big they are and you could tell she's like, 
Jamie's fond of exaggeration. And then um, that night I was out on the deck and there was one of the big black slugs. And so I put my foot next to it, took a photo and sent it to her. I'm like, foot for scale. Which is our universal unit of measure. Is our unit of measure a shoe or a foot for scale? And, yes, yeah, she was pretty impressed with the slugs that I have. Um, but I think the black slugs are coming out at night when my chickens are locked in. Oh, yeah, okay. And you can't get chickens out because foxes will get them. Yeah. I think the slugs are smarter than I think they are. Have you tried beer trap? Look, they love a bit of beer and they love a bit of apple cider. So mm. I might invest in um, like algae apple cider. Good idea. And it's, I think it's the yeast and the sugar combo they love. Mm. Mm. So I am not always disciplined about that sort of thing, but there was one one year, and I think it was when I was on maternity leave from work, I was very disciplined that year because I didn't have a lot else going on. And I got, I put a whole lot of little like plastic takeaway containers and I slightly dug them in so they were sort of, you know, flush with the level of the ground and I put beer in them all and I put them all around. I think it was all my greens that year in the veggie garden that the slugs were getting. Gee, man, it worked. I mean, you had to, you had to put in the time it was a bit of time to do that fill them up and then every morning go out and collect the slugs and remove them and do it again that day and do it but I reckon I did that for two weeks and I had a bumper crop of greens after that it really oh. really cleared out the slugs maybe I'll give that a go I put out some beer traps had some beer from when you came and stayed and camped on our front lawn oh, yeah but 12 months later, I found some beer in, in an esky and I went, beer traps. <laughs> and and we don't drink it. You bring it, but we don't necessarily drink it. So <laughs> that's why there's beer left over for the garden. And so, oh, beer traps, cool. So I, I put some out and I used, like, when the bottle was half empty, I just lay the bottle on its side. But I missed a couple of bottles and they were there for some time before I emptied them out. And the stink coming out of those bottles when I emptied them was pretty intense. Um, was, it, was it beer stink or was it slug stink? It was dead slug in your beer stink, which leads me to, because you wouldn't think that that's a segue, but it is. I have got the most magnificent crop of squid stinkhorn fungus going on in my front yard. No, what is squid stinkhorn? Like- um. Oh, I put them on Insta a few weeks ago. Um, I'll, I'll put another picture up. But they they look like they've got little tentacles. So they look when they I, – I was talking ages ago about my mycelium and how much mycelium there was in the mulch mm. and it was held together. It's like a solid block of mulch. Um, I'm like, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. And I'm like, oh, some sort of white puffball is coming up. So I've got all these white puffballs everywhere. Oh, okay, a white puffball, cool. Then – out of the white puffball erupts these orange tentacles. Weird. And sent them off to my friend Louise and went, check this out. And she's like, yeah, that's the squid stinkhorn. She sent me the scientific name. She's like, oh, yeah, I bet you can smell them. I'm like, oh, I haven't smelt them. So I went back and had a sniff, got down low and went, oh, yeah, yep, yeah, they stink. <laughs> They're sort of a bit like, it reminds me of a bit like of a, a dead slug or a dead snail. I can't smell them while I'm standing up, but the friends that I had dropped in this morning and discussed political ads, um, when they were leaving, like this is this is a friendship test. This is how I know whether I'm mixing with the right people or not. And 
you know, whether they can tolerate me. Uh, they were leaving. And I said, why don't you come down the driveway and sniff my stink horns? <laughs> yeah, that that's a niche market of friends. They both did. They got down on their hands and knees. <laughs> All right, and they're your people. <laughs> and they sniffed my stink horns. They just thought it smelled like sort of fertiliser, sea solely business. No. And I tried to talk their kids into it. The kids didn't want to have a bar of it. But this was also, they are my sort of people. We sat around the kitchen table and we discussed our preferred composting methods and how are you currently going. You know, I love it when, you know, husband and wife want to talk compost with me. It's not a gendered breakup. This is this is <laughs> both people within a heterosexual couple want to talk composting with me. And I'm like, yeah, this is good. This is the right thing to do on a Saturday morning. So I had, you are saying about that you were trying to get the kids interested in it. I had just before we got online uh, this afternoon to record this episode, my teenager, nearly 15-year-old, has had uh, a group of mates over because it's school holidays at the moment. They were over yesterday, last night, all today. Uh, so that's a whole other experience of having all these lanky boys roaming around the house and uh, eating everything that we possess. But I, they were sitting out in the back deck. I just got them back from swimming and said to them, hey, look, I'm about to record a podcast. I'm going into this room. I'm going to do it. So don't come in for an hour or so. And he goes like, sweet mom. And then as I was walking out, two of his friends like whip their heads around and say, does your mom have a podcast? So like, yeah. Now I felt like for about 20 seconds, I went up like, you know, several levels in their estimation. But then Hugo went and ruined it all by saying to them, it's about gardening. <laughs> Straight back down. Yeah, it's disappointing. Uh, I don't think they're our, um, maybe they're not our market. Yeah, I think not our demographic. Love, look, lovely. Gosh, I love teenagers. Gosh, they're funny. You know, I make a living out of teenagers. Yes. I love having them all in the car. And just listening to their conversations. So I had my seven-seater car full of them driving them around the last few days. God, that was funny. <laughs> their reasoning of things and that whole that whole part of the brain that deals with consequences and actually thinking through, all right, what's going to happen if we decide to do this and how it's going to work. And you can see that, or you can hear from their conversations that, they all have this part of their brain developed at different levels at this point. They'll mow for money. Well, they will. And I've actually, these school holidays, um, we've been completely on top of like the mowing and the whippersnippering because my teenager needs money to hang out with his mates. So this is awesome. I'm very happy about that. He can actually, he's old enough to go and get a job this year. And I'm thinking, is that going to impinge on my mowing man? I think a lot of teenagers will will juggle multiple jobs. I think you'll be all right. Mm, giving me a day tomorrow. Because tomorrow, actually, I suppose we're in the part of the podcast where we talk about our future, what we've got coming up. I have got both here and I have a day on the tractor and with the ride-on mower with the trailer attached tomorrow, building new garden beds, doing that sort of thing. So we're planning to put in about six hours on that tomorrow. So that's going to be my uh, my big achievement for this week, I think. 
I done a deal with my sister on her garden hoe where she's helping me re-enroll to uni, but this time she said it's going to cost you. So I have to go over with the brush cutter with the blade on it and sort out a section of her garden for her. I do love a bit of brush cutting. Very satisfying. Yeah. Yes, except that the brush cutter that I've got with the blade on it is the one that's too big for me. So ah, okay. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to pay for it. Got another couple of sections of dahlias to fence off compost and feed. And I then need to go and get some beer traps happening. Good. Well, hopefully next time we record, you can report back on the beer trap slug rate. Delightful, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, and one last thing I wanted to tell you, you were talking about oh, cosmos yeah. that are taller than you. Um, oh, I FaceTimed you the other day and I was showing you my liliums, my oriental liliums that are Giant about two. liliums. Yeah, they're about two metres tall. I did note when they came out of the ground that they looked substantial this year. Um, they, they're pretty impressive. They're putting on a bit of a show. <laughs> hmm. Do you feed them? Oh, just when I'm feeding everything else, I might throw some sea mungus at them. But the, the first year they weren't this big. I think this is their third year and um, they've just got bigger every year, bigger and taller. Um, they're going to be one of my retirement. Like, I like them, mm. but it's just that I haven't got time to plant something new yet that I've never done before. That's just for me. So that's one of my plants on the list of retirement plants. Yeah, I grew them as a kid. Uh, my mum. Yeah, your mum was big on the lilium. She grew amazing Christmas lilies. Yes. And her sisters grew them as well. And they used to grow them in pots. Um, really big pots and have them along their their sort of patio and when their windows were open you could you could smell them so I uh, when I'm taking the puppy to do the rounds in the morning I stop to sniff the liliums and think of my mum and my aunts oh isn't that nice well I'll be seeing you soon Erin yes and we'll um we'll have some live material then Anyway, we'll bolster up the uh, the YouTube channel and then, um, yeah, maybe in the next episode we can talk a bit more about that and what we've got on there. What a hard launch. Oh, yeah, hard launch. Let's go for hard launch. Oh, go well with your, with your gardening endeavours. Yes, you too. All right, may you destroy many slugs. That sounds really full on. Yeah, I know. It's not going to uh, please the, the vegan listeners. Uh, so sorry about that. But from this is primarily a gardening podcast and gardeners will appreciate that may your brush cutter rotate as the earth rotates around the sun and may your grass only grow in the areas we want it to oh thank you that's a lovely brush cutter blessing all right see you later here bye bye Just a note on our very catchy garden hose tunes, we have our original music composed and produced by Martini Toothpick. Martini Toothpick are Dan Zielinski and Mika Coleman. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we reside and recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities and recognise that their wisdom and knowledge has been passed on for thousands of years.